Welcome to Rock Harbor Church's channel on Sermon Audio. We hope this message is a blessing to you and helps you in your daily walk with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So please, settle in and grab your Bibles. Here's Pastor Brandon with this message. Father, thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to come tonight uh, together with each other and fellowship and and be with like-minded believers, which is just a blessing especially with the crazy world that we're in and the, just the nut jobs running around just crazier than a bed bug. It's just always good to be with your people that understand things, that are on the same page. So thank you for that. That is a blessing, Father. So now as we study your word, Father, help us to be edified and be able to live it out before you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, um, so let's get into our Bible study. And again, we're talking about the doctrine of rewards. And um, one of the the things you have to get in mind uh, when you look at Scripture and you're studying, especially the New Testament, is the difference between entrance into the kingdom and inheriting the kingdom. And uh, believe it or not, those two are not the same concepts. But unfortunately... um, your commentaries and many other people that, that really have not done the work on the doctrine of, of rewards will lump the two together. And so they'll read inheritance as, as, as if it's an automatic. And in some cases, you have to understand the context, obviously, and what the writer of the New Testament, which writer it's talk, uh, who's writing, is talking about in context. And a lot of people just blanket everything as it's salvation. He's talking about salvation. And uh, what you'll notice is many of the writers are not talking about salvation at all. They're talking about discipleship, and they're talking about the doctrine of rewards. And so one of the things you have to get in mind is what we're talking about is entrance versus inheritance. Entrance into the kingdom, uh, into the family of God, obviously, is by faith alone, and that's it. It's pretty easy, right? Everyone understands that. But inheritance is a different ballgame. Inheritance, there's two aspects to inheritance, and there's a, a passive inheritance, and then there's an active inheritance. We're, we're primarily in focusing on the doctrine of rewards with active inheritance. So um, a passive inheritance would be like, as, a, as an automatic, every believer is going to be glorified, okay? Um, and and that's, that's an automatic, that's what we call a passive inheritance. So that's just, everyone, everyone gets that. Every, uh, a passive inheritance would be everyone is, uh, uh, everyone is, is uh, well, the Holy Spirit is in everyone, lives in everyone, uh, because they're born again. So that's a, that's a passive inheritance. Everyone gets the Holy Spirit living within them. That's a passive inheritance. That's an automatic. And what's happened, I think because of Reformed theology and even Arminian theology, what has typically happened is they will take uh, passive inheritance, and then combine them with um, active inheritance, and then you get a, you get a really a, 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 a destruction of the doctrine of rewards, because then all of a sudden people think that every war, reward that's mentioned in the scriptures is an automatic to all believers, and that couldn't be further from the truth. Um, um, so, again, you have to know the difference between active and passive. And, and so we're going to talk about passive inheritance, which, uh, sorry, uh, active inheritance, which is not a guarantee. Uh, and so we have to understand those differences. So inheritance is different than entrance. So as you'll see, uh, I'll, I'll always reference the, the prodigal son, or tonight I'm going to reference Esau. Um, and when you see, when you see uh, like the prodigal son, 
The, the prodigal son is a son to begin with. The prodigal son is not a passage about uh, an, un, uh, an unbeliever getting saved. And that's, that's, if people use that for a salvation passage, they're totally misunderstanding the passage. That's not what Jesus was trying to do at all. Um, the prodigal son was a son to begin with, right? And, and then he goes and squanders his inheritance. And, and so that, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a passage about the doctrine of rewards, uh, about a believer messing their life up and wasting their life um, and you know, losing that inheritance. So anyway, let's talk a little bit about this. And the first thing you have to understand about inheritance is where you get your inheritance and wh what's the pattern that the scriptures are establishing. Well, in Hebrews chapter one, uh, the pattern is established about inheritance. And talking about the Messiah, it says this, God who at various times and various ways spoke in the times past uh, to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son. Now, here's, here's the, the key here. Whom he has appointed heir of all things. Then he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has an inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Now, what you have to realize is what the writer of Hebrews is doing is not uh, emphasizing the deity of the Messiah in verse 1. He's emphasizing the humanity of the Messiah and what the humanity of the Messiah has accomplished. Okay? So again, when we're talking about the Messiah, we're talking about the, 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 the God-man, but... As you can see, he is saying that the God-man, the man of Jesus, has now been called a son, he's a, and then he's appointed heir of all things. Um, and then he has, he has uh, sit at the right hand of the majesty and having uh, basically obtained an inheritance and a new name that is accompanied by this. So this, this is not a reference to the second person of the, well, it's, it's a reference to the second person of the Trinity, but it's a reference to the humanity of the second person of the Trinity, the, the humanity nature, um, not the deity. The deity already is established. The, the deity of Messiah uh, is already, um, you know, obviously equivalent to God the Father and God, God the Holy Spirit. This is what the, the human accomplished, the human nature accomplished, by obedience, okay? So by obedience, the human nature of the Messiah accomplished being heir to all things and being given the term son, uh, even though he was eternally the son, but the, we're talking about the, the humanity part, okay? Uh, was done when he accomplished this. Accomplished what? Well, for to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? So again, this is a designation to the humanity of the Messiah because uh, he's saying, look, he was made a little lower than the angels. So this is the idea that humans are lower than angels. Well, Messiah is made lower than the angels because of the incarnation, okay? So in his incarnation, his humanity is lower than the angels. Not his deity, but his humanity. 
And then it says, today I've begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father and he shall be my son. Okay, so again, it's telling you at a, at a certain point in time in Messiah's ministry, this happened to him. He, what, he didn't get this title before something happened, okay? Even though the second person Trinity is the son, we're talking about humanity. But when he, when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him, referring to his humanity, but to the son, he says, your throne, O God, obviously referencing the, the dual nature, the deity, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteous and hated lawlessness. There's an aspect there you can see there. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions, more than any other human, by the way, is what he's trying to say. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool, referring to his, his humanity, okay? Referring to his humanity, okay? So the principle then you're seeing here is at what point or what, what is the pattern you're seeing with Messiah given the designation the Son of God, today I have begotten you, you are now the Son, you, I have declared that you're my Son, I'm going to put all, my, all your enemies uh, under your footstool. I'm going to do all of this. Why? Why are you going to? And when did this happen? Well, you start getting clues here. In Hebrews 1, 3, and 9, it says, When he had purged our sins, you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness, referring to his humanity, not his deity. And so you can tell there's an element that at the cross is when this went down when this was accomplished. And the idea that loves righteousness and hated lawlessness, remember Messiah was tempted in all parts like we were, and he never sinned in his humanity, obviously. That's what was tested. His deity can, cannot sin. Um, his humanity was shown that, that the, even the human nature will not sin, okay? That he cannot sin because he doesn't possess a sin nature, and therefore he's not attracted to that in that sense. So we're talking about the impeccability of the Messiah. He cannot sin. But that proves that his humanity is sinless and, is requ and it, that's the requirement for atonement. You have to have a sinless sacrifice. Okay, so all of this is going down at the cross. Messiah is proving his obedience as the second Adam and following through on suffering, following through on the willfully, willfully laying down his life, which is nothing other than obedience that the first Adam didn't do. So now the second Adam is proving that obedience that he will follow all the way even to the point of death. Okay, so the principle that you're seeing here then is obedience is the requirement for inheritance. And so this goes in line with Psalm 2, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Again, this was quoted by the writer of Hebrews. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. So now you see where the inheritance is. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel, referring to the messianic kingdom. So this is, this is what the Messiah gained. In his humanity, he gained 
the ability to inherit the kingdom. The kingdom that was supposed to be brought by Adam and Eve that was lost and usurped, now this second Adam is able to bring this kingdom, so he inherits all things. It is all his now. And so when did this happen? Well, th this, this idea, I will, de I will declare the decree, the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you, is finally accomplished once the resurrection happens. Once the resurrection happened, which is God's sign, seal, and proof that, that the, the sacrifice was acceptable, but that the Messiah also proved through his obedience that he is worthy of the inheritance, okay? And, and this inheritance then is also handed to him in Revelation chapter 5 as the title deed to planet earth which which comes with the judgments to purge planet earth of sin and evil hence the the six the seven seals that that have the the seven trumpets and the seven bowl judgments but what it really is is the title deed to planet earth so through his death because it says i saw him as a lamb as though slain in in revelation referring to his death, burial, and resurrection, he has now accomplished this and therefore is granted to him by God the Father the inheritance of the earth, the inheritance of the kingdom. And therefore, that's when he got it. That's when the humanity side of the Messiah got the new name, got, got the designation of, of the Father declaring, this is my son. Now, he declared him his son early on in his ministry, but this declaration includes now he will get the inheritance. So it starts with that pattern. The only reason you and I are getting inheritance is because Christ secured his inheritance and therefore shares his inheritance with us. That's how it comes to us. So you first have to understand where does inheritance come from? It doesn't come from us accomplishing the right to have it, it has to do with him securing it for us. But Messiah then establishes the pattern in which you receive your inheritance, and the pattern that he established is obedience to the Father, all the way to the cross, to death, and the resurrection was God's stamp of approval on his obedience of securing not only our salvation, but arresting the authority away from Satan who have become the God of this world and arresting the authority and then the Father being able to give the kingdoms back to the Son. Remember, Satan tried to tempt Jesus. He says, I have the kingdoms now. I can give them to you if you'll just worship me, right? That's, that was a legitimate offer because Satan is the God of this world. He had usurped Adam. But by the cross and by the death, burial, and resurrection, Christ gained the inheritance back that our parents lost. Okay, so that, there's where you have to understand where your inheritance comes from and the, the, the foundation of rewards. Okay, so it's secure. So because of that, Jesus then will say in, the, uh, in Matthew, and this is the Great Commission, and he spoke to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And when did he say this? Before the cross? After. After he did this. So that's the pattern. He didn't have the authority as a human being, 
before, but once he does accomplish it, he then is been given all authority of judgment to him now and of the kingdoms. So again, we're, I know it's sometimes hard to grasp, but you're dealing with the God-man. So this is not a reference to his deity. In his deity, he's co-equal with God the Father. So we're not talking about that. The passages are concerning his humanity as our king, our human king, okay? And so he accomplishes all this. That is why his name then is exalted at that point in time above every other name, that the name of the Messiah, the name of the Lord Jesus, every knee shall bow, right? Why? Because of his obedience and what he accomplished, that's why. That's why his name is exalted. That's why he's given a new name and, and so forth. Okay, so that being the case then, the pattern then is faith alone gets you entrance into the kingdom, but the pattern of obedience gets active rewards is the pattern, okay? So, Here's what writer Hebrews will say. And the, writer, and, and the whole book of Hebrews is kind of about this, about uh, your inheritance. And there's also warnings about losing your inheritance, obviously. But verse 11 in chapter 6, which is a passage is typically misunderstood, he says, And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patient, or basically it should be translated patient endurance, inherit the promises. So there we're talking about inheritance, and then he's saying, look, you want the full assurance of hope, but you have to persevere to the end, okay? So this is not the doctrine of perseverance of the saints from Calvinism. This is the idea that you have to persevere through obedience to the very end, if you're going to get rewards, okay? Not talking about salvation. And the idea is that some of you, he says, have become sluggish. You're not doing what you're supposed to do. You become spiritually lazy. And what, what becoming sluggish does is cause the person to lose rewards. Sluggish means they're not doing what they're supposed to do. They're not being obedient. They're, they're dragging their feet on obedience. They're not where they need to be. And, and, and what happens is he, he's always talking about this movement forward in the writer in, in Hebrews. And if you're not moving forward, he makes the point that you're actually going backwards. So if you accept status quo of your spiritual life, then you're actually going backwards. That's why when you see people that are claimed to be Christians and they, have, they exhibit a pattern of their first year of Christianity, and even though they've been a Christian for 30 years, what's happened? They've become sluggish. They're not growing in their obedience, and they're not, it's, it's very evident. And so that's what he's talking about. So he says, look, man, he goes, some of you are sluggish in your walk with the Lord. You're not where you're supposed to be because of your disobedience. And therefore, in order to inherit those promises of, of rewards, you better get with the program and so that you can have the full assurance that you persevere to the end. Because if you do not you will lose rewards by not persevering to the end. And, and the idea is, if, you, if those who do persevere to the end, they will have the right to reign and rule in the kingdom. If you're sluggish and you don't persevere, then you won't. And it's that simple. You'll get into the kingdom because it's by faith, but you won't rule and reign. It's the concept, okay? 
So here's the, here's the, again, more admonition from the writer of Hebrews. And he says, therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet. So why, why is he saying that? He's like giving like exercise terminology. He's talking, to, he's using metaphors to explain the spiritual vitality of the person. He's saying, look, man, the people, the people that, are, that are not strengthened in their hands are not doing what is proper. They're not, they're not being obedient, and therefore they're becoming weak spiritually because their hands are like hanging down. So it's like you're weak. You're not working out. You're not at the gym, so to speak, type of thing. And you have feeble knees. You're, you're becoming anemic. You can't even walk correctly. And the big thing for Christians is the ability to walk with God. Well, he's saying you can't even walk with God because you're feeble. You need a, you need a walker to walk is what he's trying to say, right? And then he says, and make straight paths for your feet. And he says, the problem with your, lack, with your lack of obedience is you're creating crooked paths for you. You're making obstacles in your life and you're messing up your own life because you are creating your own problems. And so the idea is stop doing that so that you can get on the track that, that uh, you can be healed and get your rewards. He says, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather healed. Dislocated. So this has nothing to do with salvation. He's saying, look, man, at some point, your knees are going to get so feeble and your, your arms are going to get so weak that you can't walk and you're going to fall. Okay? And you're going to fall and hurt yourself and break your hip, hit your head, whatever. And, and, and he's using like language of, of a feeble person, if that makes sense. And we all know when a feeble person can't walk, they usually fall, break something, and they become unrepairable a lot of times, or they get pneumonia and then they die. It's a big deal when you're older to fall because it has a lot of complications. He's actually using that imagery to warn people that you can get like this, and it, all it's going to take is one fall, and you're going to be unrecoverable is what he's saying. And he says you're going to become dislocated. And it's like dislocating your hip or whatever, or what, you know. And, and, but he goes, but rather be healed. So you want to be healed and strengthen everything so that you don't take a big spiritual fall. He goes, pursue peace with all people and holiness without, without which no one will see the Lord. So again, this is an admonition, a part of obedience, right? That you're, you've got to do, that you've got to pursue peace with people and holiness. This is part of your obedience. But then again, a warning, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. What does he mean by falling short of the grace of God? It has nothing to do with salvation. He's not talking about salvation. Falling short of the grace of God is not using the tools that he provides through his grace and mercy in order to be obedient. That's what happens. So the believer stops functioning in the realm of where grace and mercy are found, where help is found. Because in disobedience, you're not going to get help. In disobedience, you're on your own. And it's buyer beware type of thing. But if you will afford yourself the grace and mercy that he provides... Uh, and, and walk in obedience, he will provide that help for you. And, and that's what he's trying to point out. So falling short of the grace of God is not using what he provides. It's just doing things on your own agenda and, and your own way of handling life and 
I'm sorry, you're going to find yourself in a mess at that point in time. Because what we need is like supernatural power uh, to be able to get through a lot of things and to cope with things and, and stuff like that. Well, that's only found in grace. Okay, that's, all, that's the only place it's found. So that's what falling short of the grace of God means. Okay. Then he says, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble. So the idea then, he says, look, man, if you're not accessing the grace of God and you're not using the tools, what will develop in you is a root of bitterness. It will spring up inside of you and you will never really get it out. It'll cause a problem with you and it will always be a hang-up issue inside of you. Because you did not access the grace and mercy of God when you needed help. You decided to handle it your way through disobedience. And this, by many, become defiled. So when a person um, gets a root of bitterness in them, uh, because they, 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 they don't get God's help in those times of need, um, they become defiled. And defilement means that they are corrupted and, and, and what, 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 what gets corrupted? Well, first of all, their attitude gets corrupted. Their behavior gets corrupted. Their mindset gets corrupted. They don't start thinking, they don't think straight anymore because something's in there. A root is causing a problem. And you can have a root of bitterness of anger, unforgiveness, um, victimhood could be a, a, a root that springs up inside the person. But it all stems from disobedience. Now, most people don't think they're being disobedient. But let's say something happens to you, a tragedy happens to you, or something affects you. Your immediate uh, uh, thing to do is to go to God's throne in the name of the Messiah and ask for help. And that's how you access his mercy and grace. But a lot of people don't do that. They actually want to cope with their own problems and not access God, and then they do that. Well, that's actually a form of disobedience because you're not doing what you're told to do as a believer in order to cope with things in your life, hardships, trials, tribulations. The scripture is replete with telling you how to handle trials and tribulations and hardships with the scriptures and the tools. But a lot of believers won't do it. They want to handle it their own way, however they want to. By doing that, you're saying, I'm going to be disobedient because I think my way is better to cope with this than God's way. And therefore, you set yourself up for an, a realm of disobedience, and then the root of bitterness springs up in you. So, he says, this is why people are defiled. Believers are become defiled. And this is one of the main causes of why believers lose rewards. Is become, they become defiled, and, and, and this root of bitterness never gets out of their life. They never become free of it. And one of the crowns, as I'll mention this, one of the crowns is mastering your sin nature not perfecting your sin nature because you can't do that but mastering it well here is this if this, a root of bitterness gets in you and you become defiled you will never master your sin nature never it never is a possibility because you're defiled inside because you won't get the root of bitterness out you have to get that out and a lot of people i bring them right up to the point of getting that out and they don't want to get it out you know why? Because it's a coping mechanism in their life. They don't want to give up. This is the way they manage life. They don't want to be told to do anything different, that the way they manage life is wrong, and so they become arrogant and stubborn, and they won't change. And it's like, all right, then fine. Then you stay that way and become defiled, but understand this. You are losing rewards every moment you don't get that out of you. You're just going to, and that's your choice. 
That's totally your choice, your option. You don't have to, you don't, you're gonna get into the hev in heaven, you're gonna be in the kingdom, but you're gonna not have any rewards because you're defiled. And you have lived defiled this way for a long time. That's why it's so important to get roots of betterness. Now, he continues on. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau. So he relates this person that has roots of bitterness in them to Esau. And again, the question is not whether Esau is a believer or not. That's not what's at, that's not his point. He's trying to point out what Esau did. Like Esau, for who, for, uh, who, for and one morsel of food, sold his birthright. Okay, so let me ask you this. Just like the prodigal son, Esau sells his birthright to Jacob, right? But was Esau still a son? Yes. So Esau still remains a son, but he doesn't have the birthright anymore. You see his point? He's saying you could still be a son of God, a child of God, now that you're in the Messiah, but you can sell your birthright and not have your birthright anymore. Or basically, he's relating birthright to inheritance because birthright would give Esau his inheritance. That's where Esau would get his inheritance is from his birthright. But he said he didn't want that. He didn't want his inheritance is what Esau said. I would rather have stew. Why? Why did Esau do that? Because here's what Esau thought in his head. Well, we'll get this to when we, we study Jacob and Esau and the patriarchs. Esau didn't see any benefits of spiritual inheritances, okay? He was a man that lived for the moment. He was in this period of time, you know, and he, you know, he, wanted, he only wanted an inheritance if it brought him he, anything for the here and now. And, and he, he, he missed it. He thought the whole birthright thing was the spiritual aspect, and what did he care spiritually about anybody? He didn't care about him because part of carrying the covenant, of the Abrahamic covenant, was to be able to bless people. He didn't care about blessing people. All he cared was about the here and now and what it could do for him. And so he saw it as, well, it's for other people. It's a spiritual reality. And so I don't want anything of it. So, hey, I'll give it to you, Jacob. Just give me the stew. That's how he, he thought of it. It was nothing to him, really. And that's how a lot of believers think. They don't think about rewards. It's nothing to them. They don't care. All they want to do is live for the here and now. And so there's no thought in, involved. It's, and so he's relating that to Esau. He's hitting them pretty hard with this. You understand this. He's saying, you guys, not you, but the people he's writing to are going to become like Esau. You're going to sell your birthright. And what were they doing? They were selling their birthright because they were going back into Judaism. And he's basically warning them, if you go back into Judaism to hide from persecution because life is tough, and you're going to hide and think, from, think you're going to do that, I'm going to tell you what you're going to do. You're going to lose your inheritance. You're not going to lose your salvation. You're going to lose your inheritance. And that's what he's warning them about. They're apostatizing to save their necks. They're apostatizing so they don't get Jew-on-Jew -Jew persecution. And so he's saying, look, you can do that, but you're going you're gonna to lose your inheritance. Okay, so look what he says. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance though he sought it diligently with tears. So what happened? Well, afterward, Esau did see that, oh, the Abrahamic covenant not only has spiritual blessings, but does have material blessings attached to it. It made Abraham rich. 
And Isaac, too. There was material blessings, and that's true. The Abrahamic covenant promises material blessings to the descendants of, of, of Abraham, primarily the Jews, right? And, and so when he realizes that, and he says, oh, wait a second, there is material blessings, he says, I want it back. And he went diligently with tears, wanting this thing back. But what does it say? He's rejected. For, he found no, for, for there was no place for repentance. Wait a second. What do you mean no place for repentance? I thought, you know, if we turned, we turned around in our behavior, then we repent and get right with God. Yeah, that's true. That's for believers that are going astray. That's true. Um, but this one he's saying there's no place for repentance for that kind of nonsense. What is he saying? What, is it, what does it mean when there, he, he was rejected? So it can't mean salvation, okay? Because salvation, Jesus says, I will no wise cast you out if you come to me. So you can never be rejected. So this rejection must be something different. You're rejected for rewards. That's what it's referring to. And, you're re, and there is no place for repentance. What does it mean? That the rewards you lost cannot be gained back. That's what it's saying. That's what it's warning. Now, that's pretty scary to me because you can lose rewards and there's no repentance in getting them back. That's the whole point of Hebrews chapter six. If you read Hebrews chapter six, he points out that those of you who have tasted this and tasted that, the tasting obviously has to do with um, the experience of Christianity, of being a believer. So he's not talking about unbelievers. And then he says, look, man, if you basically warn them, if you go back into Judaism, there's no repentance for it. There's no repentance for apostasy. You can't come back. What does he mean by not coming back? Doesn't mean you can't reestablish your relationship with the Lord. Doesn't mean that and fellowship. It doesn't mean that. It means you, you, that the rewards that you lost, you can never gain back. They're gone now. You have forfeited that right to get those particular rewards. That's why the doctrine of rewards is so serious because you can never get them back. Now, can you gain other rewards in other areas? Yes, you can. But if there's a root of bitterness that's tagged to a behavior that causes disobedience, that causes the person uh, to become defiled in that particular area, then they will lose rewards in that defilement. Not all their whole life, because there might be other categories in their life that they can gain rewards over here and here, but in this category where the root of bitterness is, they're not getting any rewards because they're defiled. And so they're, they're rejected in that area, and their works are burned, and therefore they can't get them back. Now, when you, lo you look at the prodigal son, and, and again, I'll reference that again, when he decided to come back and he woke up in the pig pen, what did the father do? My son was dead, but now is alive again. My son was lost, but now he's found. That's not a reference to salvation at all. That's a reference that he was living a riotous life outside. He was carnal. He was worldly. He had left. And what did he ask for before he left? His inheritance. So he took his inheritance and squandered his inheritance. So when he comes back, does the father give him a second inheritance? He does say this, put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet. My son was dead, and now he's alive again. He was lost, and now he's found. So what happens? He's always the son. 
The ring on his finger and the shoes on his feet signify that he is a son. The ring on his finger and the shoes on his feet do not signify inheritance. He already lost that. It signifies that he's always a son. He always will be a son. That's all that means. But he doesn't get his inheritance because guess what? He lost it because of the way he lived. Now, again, that, that's what the prodigal son's teaching. This is what Esau is teaching, that Esau wanted it back, and he, and he couldn't. And this is why in, in, in our teaching at Rock Harbor, I make this a point of how serious this is. Um, because the goal is to get all of your inheritance, to get all of the rewards, to get everything that's coming to you. And, and, and that's why Paul says, do not let anyone take your crown. Because the, uh, the concept is, there, like uh, on the screen, there's your inheritance. It's in a bag. It's all there for you. But every time you, you have a root of bitterness, it's like you dipping into the hands of your own inheritance and taking a coin out. And then, then you want to say, well, I want to do this. And then you take another coin out. And you just keep taking coins out, and you just keep keeping coins out. And by the end of it, your bag gets smaller and smaller and smaller. That, and it's, it's you who's doing it, if that makes sense. It's not Christ, because he says, I want to give you the whole bag. I want to give you the whole thing, because I have predetermined your works and what you should do. And you have a choice of whether you will work in those works and get the whole bag. But if you try, choose the root of bitterness and not do that and not... Not, not cope with life the way I tell you to cope with, you're taking coins out of that bag every time on your own. And this is why there will be sadness at the Bema Seed and shame is because, you know, it, it, again, I'm using a metaphor because I don't know all of it, but I'm using the metaphor of the bag of coins. It's like, well, here's your bag and I wanted to give you so much more, but this is all I have left to give you because you kept taking out of it in this in the life that you lived. And there's where, you know, First uh, John chapter 2 mentions the shame that people have taken so much out of their bag, they don't have much left for eternal rewards. Now, what do eternal rewards mean? Well, it, it, there's all kinds of things we're going to study, but it means privilege, it means uh, position, it means different serving capacities, it means authority, it means ruling and reigning, it, it means all kinds of different um, enhancements in eternity that others won't have. Only those who have their maximum rewards get all these different aspects of eternity and, and, and their eternity is going to be far greater than someone else who doesn't have rewards. Now we're all there Understand that, and, and, but man, like we said, it's very juvenile to think, well, I just, all I care is about getting to heaven. That's, that's like how a five-year-old thinks, because that's not how the New Testament writers write. They don't write like a five-year-old. Well, just be glad you got there. It, it, they don't, they, you'll never see a statement from them saying things like that. You'll see statements like this. Don't be Esau, who, who gave up everything for a stupid bowl of porridge for his birthright. He lost it all, and he, when, he, when he figured it out, he couldn't get him back because he had, he had wasted his life. And that's the idea. Now, as long as you're alive, you're not wasting your life. But, what, but the idea, what the writer of Hebrews is trying to say is, look, when you, when you are raptured or you die, that's, that's it. That's when there's no return, obviously. It's it. You're at the end. There's no second chances of getting more rewards or anything like that. 
you're, what you're going into eternity with is those rewards. That's it. You're sealed into that at that point in time with your rewards. Um, and again, we're not talking about salvation. Okay, let me stop there because I see if there's any questions because I know that's a lot to digest. Um, is that clear as mud kind of? Or? Okay. Yeah, let's go back there. Thank you, Pastor. Um, now, the inheritance that you were just talking about and, and the rewards of the inheritance part, is that just for the thousand years or is that for... Yeah, good question. Um, and the rewards. Yeah, yeah. The, it's, it's both. Uh, they are called eternal rewards. So they stay with you for all eternity. So there, yeah, there is a thought that, uh, out there, uh, Steve, that, um, that uh, the rewards are only for the messianic kingdom, and then after that, then it, it, they all dissolve. But by definition, in some of the other passages, the definition says eternal rewards. If they're eternal, that means they're eternal. And here's another thing about understanding um, those guys that make a distinction between the messianic age and then eternity. Um, really, on a theological level, Eternity, eternity is in two phases, uh, and the two phases are this, the Messianic age and then eternity. So the Messianic age starts eternity and, and begins a lot of what looks like heaven, but even though it's not, it, it begins to show the reflections of heaven because Messiah is ruling and reigning. Because you have to, you have to say it is in two phases because when Messiah rules and reigns on David's throne, he will rule and reign forever, forever, not just for a thousand years. It means forever. And therefore, by, by that theological understanding that Messiah rules and reigns once he's on David's throne forever, he will rule and reign from that throne forever and ever and ever and ever, means that eternity has already started in the Messianic age. And, and, and that, that, that's the first phase. And then he continues to rule and reign on that throne but on the new heaven, in the new heaven and on the new earth, uh, if that makes sense. So, Stephen, that's, that's where I think their, their misunderstanding is, is, is when they break that up is because I, th I think they don't understand the two phases of eternity. I, and and that, that totally makes sense when you have to realize once he sits on David's throne, he's not getting off. That's, a, that's an eternal throne uh, forever. Um, so... That's why we say eternity has started at that point in time. So yeah, eternal rewards. And so, you know, um, they're with you forever or you're, you have lost them forever. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. Okay, right there. Um, so um, when Paul talks about struggling with sin and um, at the end of his life, he said that he ran the race and he finished well. Yeah. And um, how does that jive with um, these passages that you're talking about tonight? Yeah. Uh, it just, I mean, I, I find that I'm so terribly human, even though I struggle. Um, I seem to have a heart for the Lord. Yeah. But um, sometimes stuff like this kind of makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. 
It actually should. I mean, that's a, that's a good response because it does make me, it makes me uncomfortable because I see what it's saying, and, and, and that's why there's so many warnings in the writer of Hebrews. What, what he's trying to say is we're, he's not talking about, because Paul wrestled in Romans chapter 7 with his own flesh, things I want to do, I don't do, and things I do, you know, I do, I don't do, I do. And so we're, ta- we're not talking about the average bearer wrestling with their sin nature and, and uh, you know, sinning, but the nature of that kind of believer is that they sin, they confess, or if they need to repent, they repent, and they get back on track pretty quickly. He's talking about somebody that says, hey, you know what? I'm done, and checks out, okay? Because that's what they, they're doing. And how many of us know that, that okay, like, like kids that, we, that, that love the Lord, and then they become an adult, and they fly the coop, right? And then they're gone for like years, right? Years. And then they finally come back maybe in their 40s or their 50s. He's talking about that kind of person that decided to go into prodigal son living. He's not talking about the average believer that's like stumbling and struggling, but they're getting back up and they're fighting the good fight. That's what Paul's referring to. I fought the good race. I fought, sorry, I ran the race. I fought the good fight. Because it's going to be a struggle for everybody. But as long as you will do the necessary things to get back in fellowship and, and get out the roots of bitterness and stay in fellowship, you, 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 you're going to get your rewards. Esau as an example, or the prodigal son, is an example of somebody that decides to consciously break fellowship with the Lord and get off into their own living, right? And how many people know about people like that? I mean, it's like everybody I talk to, okay? Or they apostatize, and all of a sudden now, they, you know, um, they went into some false teaching, and you're like, I can't get them back, Brandon. Yeah, I know. And so, it, it, so to, to bring some solace to that, we're not talking about the average person. We're talking about, he uses Esau as an example. That this guy, you know, it, it, the, the kind of believer Esau would be is like you're telling him, hey, look, man, don't you care about your rewards or anything? I don't care, man. I just want to live for the day, man. You only got one life, Brandon. You know, it's that kind of mentality. And then they start living for that. Um, and maybe they were saved at a VBS at 12. Now, again, I'm going to reserve the category always. There's always fake believers. I get that. But that's not what that, that if, if that was always the case, then the scripture would deal with that. Uh, it only deals with that kind of like one time. Like, you know, uh, I will, you know I will, I, he says in Matthew 7, I never knew you. For the majority of the passages, it's telling you that believers do this. And so you have to, you have to encompass that. So if you're walking the straight and narrow if you're, if, and, and you get off track and you're getting back in fellowship, that's normal. That's normal, okay? We wish it didn't happen, but it's normal. But um, I'll give you a, a, a real-world example of what's happening right now. A lot of churches and a lot of Christians are in the, in the midst of apostasy right now, okay? And what, what do I mean by that? They're, they're like turning a blind eye or even gay affirming gay, gay marriage, or you know the 52 genders, or whatever it might be, or they're they're turning on Israel, or something like that, and that is that's a form of apostasy that you lose rewards for because you're not affirming the scriptures to people, right? You're not holding your ground and holding fast to the word of God. Those believers too will also lose rewards. So that's a, a that's a big deal, you know that that. Hey man, you're you're gonna go into this wokeism and start supporting wokeism, 
you lose rewards in that. Um, and so that's another example. So it's a, it's, it's, it's a big deal. Um, and, 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 and when you read Hebrews, and I know I'm drawing a lot tonight from Hebrews, Hebrews is a warning epistle. It is, it, the whole book is a warning, man. Because you know what his ultimate warning is? He says, yeah, not only will you lose rewards if you apostatize, he's telling them. He's saying your life's going to end short. You're going to shorten your life like Kadesh Barnea. And he says, uh, you remember, Kadesh Barnea is the generation that refused to go in the promised land. And, and if you read that story about Kadesh Barnea, the, the, the Exodus generation, um, they refused to go in the promised land. Then the next day they wanted to go in. Remember that? They come to Moses and say, hey, man, we blew it. Sorry. Let's go. We're ready. And Moses goes, no. Over. You, you crossed the line. The, the time for you to go in was yesterday, and you didn't go. You lost your right at that point in time. You're not going in. In fact, what, what Yahweh has told me is that he will forgive you, but every one of you is going to die in the desert and never enter the promised land as a penalty for not going in. Remember that? And then he said, ah, Moses, forget it, man. We're going to go in. And they go in. They try to go in. Do you remember that? And what happens? They get smoked. And Moses is like, I told you. I told you guys, don't go in there. I told you not to do it. You had, it was supposed to be yesterday, and you didn't do it. And you, you reached a point of no return. But, but what is the point? Kadesh Barnea, that generation is saved. I, I, I fully intend to see that Exodus generation because he says, I forgive you. He forgave them. But there was a consequence, wasn't there? And the consequence is I'm going to withhold reward from you and I'm going to shorten your life. You're all going to die in the desert. And so the writer of Hebrews then gives a warning and says, yeah, if you think it was bad with Kadesh Barnea, with the light that they were given to them, how much more, it's, it's a kalve komer in Hebrew, it's a lesser to the greater. He goes, how much more with you having the revelation of the Messiah if you do that with him? And there's where the term trampling the blood of Christ comes from. He goes, if you do that, you're going to trample the blood of Christ. And trampling the blood of Christ is not a, an unbeliever rejecting the gospel. It's actually a believer who's apostatizing. Okay, and, and usually they're apostatizing back into works, right? And saying that the blood of Christ is no good, not good enough for me. I'm going to go back into works, a works-based mentality. You actually, in effect, are trampling the blood. You're saying it's not good enough. And that's an ultimate apostasy. And, and therefore, you will shorten your life at that point in time. Um, and so there's a, a double-edged sword to the writer of Hebrews, right? And so... Hebrews is a very complicated book, there's no doubt about it, but it is a warning book. Uh, it is no doubt a warning book. And it is, it, I, I will tell you, it's, it's written to make you feel very uneasy about what's going on in your own personal life. Uh, it's not a, a self-help book, so to speak. It's not a Joel Osteen, make you feel good type of thing. But uh, it's a serious book because of what was happening. And by the way, just as, a, as a, what happened in his history, uh, when Hebrews was written, um, they were on the verge of apostatizing and they were going to go back into Judaism to escape Jew-on-Jew -Jew persecution. Hebrews is written somewhere in the time of about 65 AD-ish, somewhere in that neighborhood, about 65 AD. 
That should ring a bell to everybody. Okay? So 65 AD, they're like, it's Jew on Jew persecution. Hey, man, I don't like being persecuted as a Christian because I'm being cut off from the synagogue and all these other, all my family has cut me off. I'm going to go back into Judaism and be a secret Christian and just go through the rituals and do the whole thing. And the writer says, don't do that. You're going to die. 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 Don't do that. And, and so what happens? In, was it 67 AD, Vespasian comes in and sacks and surrounds and sieges uh, Jerusalem, and they're all stuck in there, and uh, they can't get out. It, and, and so Vespasian's supply lines run out, apparently, or something like that, and so Vespasian calls off the siege of Jerusalem. It was at that time that the believers who understood the Olivet Discourse, because the Olivet Discourse stretches from the destruction of the temple into the future, and they read uh, John 21, and they knew about it, and they knew what Messiah said, that when you see Jerusalem surrounded, that's the sign that Jerusalem's going to be destroyed and the temple's going to be destroyed. Get out, right? And so those believers that saw that um, went and went. They went into death. They didn't know to go to Petra, apparently, so they went to Pella, and they, they stayed in Pella, not Petra, and they actually were, 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 went once the siege was off and they stayed there. Then what happened is Vespasian's son, Titus, comes in in 70 AD. They resupply and then he surrounds Jerusalem and no one can get out at that point in time. And then they, they sack the temple, destroy it. Not one stone is left on another and 1.2 million Jews die at that point in time. But these Hebrews that he was writing to that went back into Judaism, died in the 70 AD siege. Exactly what he warned them about, that if you go back into Judaism, do not think you're going to save your life. Because if you do, God will shorten your life. And he did using Titus. And they were killed in 70 AD. Just five years later, as the writer of Hebrews says, you're not going to save your life, dude. Don't do it. You're better off being persecuted and let God preserve you through it. So it was a, a huge historical um, example. Yeah, go ahead. Well, Pastor Brandon, we have an online question from one of our viewers, Coral Piano. Coral Piano? Yeah, Coral. Coral, she's asking, how does this tie in with the punishment of someone who does harm to a child? And speaking of rewards. Well, obviously, the, the, you know, they're going to lose reward. If they're a believer, they lose rewards. Uh, in, in civil society, that person should be punished, obviously. And, they, and hopefully they do get punished. But if not, um, if they're an unbeliever, their torment in hell is worse because of this, the, the sin. So there's are degrees of sin and there's degrees of punishment that correspond with the degrees of sin. So you have degrees of punishment. Um, if the person gets saved, then obviously Christ paid for all sins, but they, they, they lose rewards, um, just like David loses rewards, just like Moses lost rewards, just like any believer loses rewards when they don't act correctly in their life. And so there's a loss. And uh, sometimes um, people make decisions that cost, 
cost them for all eternity about that. Go ahead, Frank. We got one more from our online listener. Her name's Lori Levitt. She says she knows God promised Israel to the Jewish people, but she's not clear what he promised to the Ishmaelites. Um, He promised them to be uh, many peoples, and he promised them to have 12 kings, 12 kingdoms, and they would flourish. And that's what he promised, and that's exactly what we see today. Uh, That's what he's promised them. That's what he promised Ishmael, but um, um, that's it. He didn't promise them land, that's for sure. I know that. He didn't, so he did promise them to be a numerous people, um, but he did prophesy they would live next to Israel too. So you have that. So have time for two more questions? Go ahead. Where am I at? Yeah. Hello, Pastor Brandon. Hey. It's Anthony. So my question is going to be referred to the inheritance and the reward system. Yeah. If, if that's, if the shame that you were talking about when you're in heaven because you have such a small inheritance and rewards, is that something that could have driven um, Satan and his crew to do what they did? To do what to it? Is that why they were casted out of heaven? Because their rewards or their inheritance were small? Well, uh, it's a little bit different. Um, And remember this too, that the the shame is only associated to the time at the Bema seat, not not in heaven. So you want to make sure you separate those things out because you don't want to say there's shame in heaven because there's no tears in heaven. But there will be shame at the Bema seat. So you want to just confine it to the Bema seat. But beyond that, you won't have shame. Um, But uh, as far as in terms of Satan is concerned... um, Satan was basically given the full monty of all his beauty, all his intelligence, everything. We, we haven't actually had that. So like in the Hebrew, um, it tries, and, and I think um, it tries to say that he was maxed out in his blueprint as far as how his design was. And uh, um, Ezekiel is making mention of this. And he's saying that Satan had it all. I mean, everything he could possibly want beauty, intelligence, power. He was the top angel of all of them. So in essence, Satan was given everything at the beginning. And being given everything, he fell in love with that. And, and therefore, what he had, he forsook and lost everything. And that's what uh, Ezekiel uh, is trying to point out, that, that um, it was like he had all of his things, all his rewards, if you want to call that, all his inheritance given to him at the beginning. And, and then by rejecting God, he gave everything up. And, and, and then you have to understand, then why did he give everything up? Because the nature of sin is insanity. And he basically went insane because he fell in love with himself. Notice the pattern, though. When someone is... is and again, it's, this is not God's fault. It's the person's fault. When someone is given something too much too soon, they can't handle it. So why is it always given as an inheritance? Because usually when you get an inheritance, you're a lot older and wiser, and you can actually handle when the money comes to you, so to speak, right? But if you watch like these, these I don't know, these um, superstars, Hollywood, musics, uh, you, know, you know, NFL, you know, any professional player, 
They get all this money at 19 or 20 years old, and they can't handle it, can they? It just makes them go crazy. They can't handle it. Versus like, hey, you know, you're 65 and you get an inheritance, you can handle it a little bit better. I'm not saying you will, but you typically can handle inheritance better. So notice the pattern always in Scripture. You sacrifice now for inheritance later because then you're ready to accept it at that point in time in your life. But, but Satan wants everything now. I want it now. And he wanted everything now. And then he wanted so much, he wanted to be above God. He wanted all that, his inheritance and more. He wasn't satisfied just with everything he had. And it goes to show you that, that God's pattern of making us wait, sacrifice to wait for something better, is the pattern that we should also ascribe to versus wanting everything now, um, which is kind of the, the, the millennial Gen Z mindset of we got to have everything our parents have right now instead of waiting. And I think it causes problems. And obviously it did him. He gave up everything for it to rebel against God. So yeah, it's a, it's a, it plays that part into it. Absolutely. One more question. Yeah, go ahead. Where am I at? Yeah. Uh, I was just talking about the bag of inheritance also. I thought I understood you to say that God decided a long time ago how big that bag would be. Does that mean all of us have a different size bag or depending on when you become a Christian? Yeah, well, it, it, the great thing about it's not dependent on when you become a Christian because the parable of the, the workers in the field show you that some workers come at nine, some come at at noon, some comes at three, some come at the last hour at five o'clock. But then the five o'clock guy gets the same reward, same payout, the pay wage as the one at nine o'clock. And what was the point of the Messiah? He was saying that basically, look, based on when you come to me in your life, you can actually make up your rewards, even if you come late in your life. He goes, as an example, the guy who comes at five had the same reward as the guy who came at nine. And why so? Because the guy at nine was lazier in his work. He was slothful. So the guy that comes at the last hour of his life actually made up for what that guy spent 30 years, 40 years doing. He actually made it up in five years. And he will get the equivalent reward. Now, Everyone is given the right to rule and reign. Everyone's given the right to have all these different positions. Everyone is given that ability, but it's up to you to attain them. So it's not like he's keeping other people down. And to some he gives one, to talent, to some he gives two, to some he gives five. So your job then is to be responsible for what you have been given. And even if you're a one talent, you can still get the same reward as a five talent. So it's, it's not... It's not Everyone, it, it's possible that, that all of them are the same based on the different person's ability. Um, so everyone gets a chance to rule and reign. Everyone gets a chance to uh, serve closer to Christ. Everyone gets that chance, but not all will take the chance. Not all will earn that chance, but it is available to them. So nothing's, nothing's being kept from them. Does that make sense? They're, everything's available to them if they will go for it, if they will go for it. Okay, one more, Pastor Brandon. We got one from Daniel Pedro. He's on our online listener on YouTube. Yeah. He says, if there's only shame at the Bema seat, but throughout eternity there's not, as the Bible teaches, will you still have the realization that others have better or more rewards? Yes, you will. You will. You will. 
Now, now, now think about it, though. You're right. You will. But it's under the guise of not having a sin nature. So you won't have your feelings that you have now. You won't see it through that lens anymore. You'll see it from a different lens, so to speak, a different perspective. You'll see it from an eternal perspective. Um, will there be regrets, regrets at the Bema Seed? Yes, of course. That's the whole point of, of the shame is regrets. But um, what will happen is in your glorified state, you will come to accept it and realize that. that and, and, and here's the thing, too. You will realize that other people paid a higher price in their life, and that's why they have a higher position, and that's why they have more access to this or that or whatever the situation is. This is why they rule and reign over more nations or whatnot. That, that's, that totally is um, just and fair that people have different rewards, and, th- that, that, and the recognition of that is, 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 needs to be acknowledged because if you don't, then the person who did martyr themselves or whatever they did uh, is, you know, th- you can't ignore that. You have, to, you have to recognize that in eternity that this person paid the ultimate sacrifice and that's why they're being rewarded. And everyone will know that. Everyone will acknowledge that and everyone will rejoice at that of how much that person was willing to sacrifice. That's why they can serve Christ at a higher level or whatever they can do. So you won't have this jealousy, envy, covetousness, or anything like that. It will be more of a celebration that this person really did really good. Um, But yes, there will be a distinction. To say there's no distinctions is to ignore the doctrine of rewards. You have to acknowledge distinctions. Um, God does. I know, <clears throat> good Lord, <clears throat> he sees our heart. But if you go, if you're doing the rewards, but you don't do it, you don't do it with a good heart, do you still get the reward? I, 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 you, you cut yeah. out on the mic. Do, do you still get the reward? If you do what now? If, if, you, if you do the good works. Yeah. And, but you don't do it with a gleeful heart. Well, then that's, that, becomes balance, that becomes weighed by the Messiah of how much, you know, and then that's, that's according to him of what the motives were. Like, you know, Paul said, I, didn't even, I don't want my own motives sometimes. And that's true. We don't know our own motives. But Messiah does. And what Paul said is he will, he will commit himself to the Messiah at the judgment that, he, that Messiah will know how to balance the pieces of the pie, so to speak, of what was a legit motive, what was wrong motives, what was an agenda, whatever. And Messiah can piece that all out and say, this is what I can reward you for. And so, um, yeah, so motives is a big thing. You know, if, if, and that's why it says, you know, whether it's giving, I like a cheerful giver, he says, it basically, Messiah is, to Messiah, it's this. If you don't want to do it and your heart's not in it, then don't do it. Because if, you're, if you have a bad attitude, I'm not going to reward you for, because of the bad attitude. So don't even do it. Don't even attempt it if you don't want to do it. And that's the idea of a cheerful giver. If you're not cheerful about giving to the Lord, then don't give. Because he would rather not have your money. And, and, and then you're not going to get any reward out of it anyway. So <laughs> motives is a big deal, uh, right? You know? um, and quite frankly, if you want to know someone that had a bad motive, it was Jonah. 
right? I mean, you talk, talking about copping a bad attitude, he was still ticked off about the whole thing at the end of it. And he was mad that a weed had just grew up and then it, it withered, and he was, he was ticked off. But what's the point? What's the point about Jonah? He did his job, but he didn't want to do it. So you think Jonah's going to get a reward for that? No. Because your motive has to be there. Your motive has, I want to do that. If, if, so, if Christ has to bring you back from the dead in the belly of a fish to go do something, then you got problems at that point, okay? Just want to just tell you, if he has to do that to you to get you to do something, you're probably not getting any rewards for that one. Okay. So, uh, Pastor, I'm just curious. Um, so let's say we're, or I'll just use me as an example. Well, let's say... Let's say my life is over and I'm the servant who hid his talent and didn't do anything with it. Yeah. Um, what would you say is the bare minimum that I should expect other than, of course, a glorified body? What is the bare minimum? Are we trying to figure this one out? What's the bare minimum? Wow, that's a good question. You're thinking, man. You are thinking. That's good. <laughs> well, I, I would say this. Theologically, the bare minimum you can expect are the passive inheritances. That's what you could expect. So passive inheritance, you would be glorified, yeah. You'd be adopted. Our final adoption is when we're glorified. Um, you'll be in the kingdom, And picking up gum, I guess. That's it, man. That's it. And cleaning toilets, one of the two. And that's it. So it's not much. It's not your passive inheritance, even though it's great. Um, it's not compared to all the other things you could possibly get uh, in your walk with the Lord. So I hope we're striving for more than just the bare minimum, obviously. All right, man. Thanks for joining us for another lesson. We hope that this message is a blessing for you and helps you grow towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website at rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up for our redemption draws near.